Welcome to What Christians Should Know, How You Can Apply Biblical Principles to Everyday Life. Good day to all. Welcome back. As always, my name is Dr. Elijah Sadafel. Welcome to What Christians Should Know, Volume 2, Part 5, Communion. So why communion matters and how communion applies to your everyday life is quite simple. If you truly understand what the sacrament of communion means, then you can sincerely remember and appreciate what Christ has done for you. If you forget the importance of communion, you run the risk of falling away from the Lord. Many Christians overlook the dire warning that not interacting with the Lord's Supper properly can actually be very detrimental to you. Our main biblical reference for communion can be found in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 29. I will also draw your attention to similar descriptions in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 22 to 25, and Luke 22, verses 14 to 20. In Matthew 26, we find the description of Jesus initiating the sacrament of communion, otherwise known as the Lord's Supper, otherwise known as the Eucharist. In Matthew it says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. One of the reasons why I enjoy teaching about communion is that this sacrament ties together so many themes and neatly bridges the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The central crux of the Bible tells a story of a loving God through Jesus that executes a rescue mission to restore a severed relationship with his people. Communion, or the Lord's Supper, is a sign representing the restoration of fellowship with God as he invites us to sit at his table in the intimacy of a meal. Another term used for communion is a Eucharist, which is derived from the Greek word eucharisto, meaning to thank. A component of communion is to come together and to give thanks for what Jesus has accomplished for us all. So if you learn nothing else from this podcast, the key take-home point is that communion is intended to draw people closer to God so that they can fellowship with Him, not as isolated individuals, but as a unified community. And that unified community comes together to remember and give thanks for what Jesus has done for them. Communion is an ongoing ordinance that is observed repeatedly throughout our Christian walk, a sign of fellowship with Jesus, and brings together other believers in the body of Christ. While baptism, the other sacrament, highlights the start of a Christian's life and relationship with Jesus, communion highlights the remembrance of what God has done for us and the continuation of our covenantal relationship with Him. Hence, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11.25, In the same way, Jesus took the cup also after supper, saying, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Keep in mind that in the time of Jesus, sitting down to have a meal with someone was a pretty intimate exercise, which is why so many religious authorities ridiculed Christ for sitting down at tables with all those who were quote-unquote sinners. So the context of communion implies a closeness and familiarity with God and those whom you are at the table with. There are many allusions to communion in the Old Testament. For example, after the Lord liberates the Israelites from Egyptian bondage and leads them out into the wilderness, he gives the people the Ten Commandments as a way to explicitly define expected behavior in relationship with him. Then in Exodus 24, 9 to 11, it says, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nahab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate and drank. Now to truly understand what communion is, then you have to understand the Passover. So when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26, he did so during the Passover celebration. Communion must take the Passover into consideration as Jesus is the Passover lamb as written by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.7. So if we go back in biblical time, we find God's people, the Israelites, under oppressive Egyptian bondage. God sends Moses, a mediator, to deliver the people from their oppression. Moses, being extremely hesitant, as described in Exodus 3 and 4, basically asks God, Hey, I'm just a guy. It's been a while since your people have heard from you, so why would anyone, either Pharaoh or the Israelites, believe me when I tell them that you sent me? God responds by basically saying, Don't worry, they will believe you. Tell them that I am sent you, and I will grant you the ability to perform miraculous wonders to reveal to everyone that I am the Lord. The miraculous wonders were the ten plagues that struck Egypt. Essentially, Moses asked Pharaoh, Let my people go. Pharaoh would then say no. Then a plague struck. This happened nine times, and Pharaoh still would not budge. But the tenth plague is when God called Moses to himself and gave instructions for the institution of the Passover. So in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 13, God gives instructions to Moses and Aaron to tell the people on how to institute the Passover. God basically tells them they should take a year-old male lamb without defect to slaughter that lamb and to take the blood and put it on the tops and sides of the door frames. The meat of the lamb was to be roasted over a fire, and along with that meat, the people would eat bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Nothing of what they prepared was to go to waste, and they were to eat with a certain readiness, meaning standing up with their cloaks tucked into their belts. Of course, the tenth plague was when God's judgment came upon Egypt and took the lives of every firstborn human and animal of every household. But when God's judgment came upon Egypt, 
and he saw the blood of the innocent lamb on the doorposts and lintel of his people, he would therefore pass over those households, saving those particular houses from judgment. So the Passover was a sign that pointed well beyond itself to something much greater. That sign revealed that God was going to cast judgment on Egypt, but the Lord was going to make a distinction between his people who would be passed over and those who were to receive divine judgment. What separated those who would be saved from the rest is the blood of a lamb without defect on the doorposts and lintels of the Israelites' houses. The people also ate unleavened bread and consumed the food on alert and in haste, ready to go at a moment's notice. Back then, the Passover was never something final in and of itself, but a sign that prepared them for what was coming. So as I mentioned, during the 10th plague, God passed over the houses with blood on them, but for the houses without the blood, calamity came in the death of the firstborn son. It was after this 10th plague that Pharaoh let the Israelites go. So after the Israelites were set free from bondage and they subsequently celebrated the Passover yearly, they looked back and remembered what God had done for them. He set them free from death to live for God. The Passover was a sign of deliverance and redemption. Now fast forward to Matthew 26 with Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. In a similar way, before the spotless, sinless Passover lamb of Jesus, who had his blood shed on the vertical and horizontal beams of the cross, he added new meaning and significance to the Passover. He, as the only begotten Son of God, would suffer the total wrath of God at Calvary, yet his blood would subsequently allow God's wrath to pass over all of humanity. And just like in Egypt when the Passover was initiated before the tenth, final, and worst plague, Jesus adds this novel importance in the communion before the cross. Jesus told his disciples that the unleavened bread was now my body, which would be broken, and the cup was now my blood that is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Hence, when we partake of communion, we now look back and remember what Jesus did for us, which is exactly how God qualified why we are to participate in the Lord's Supper. Jesus said in Luke twenty-two nineteen, do this in remembrance of me. Generally speaking, when we remember, we typically memorialize an event in time, for example, birthdays or anniversaries. We also memorialize events in space, such as placing a statue at the site of an important historical event. People memorialize all the time, like bumper stickers that say, we will never forget, because the danger in forgetting is that we become detached from the significance of what the memorial represents, regardless of whether that memorial points to a person, an event, or an idea. For example, if I were to forget the memorial of our wedding anniversary, then my wife may think that my commitment to our marriage is faltering because I forgot. If I stopped going to church every Sunday and did not remember both the sacredness of the Lord's house and the Sabbath, 
I will become detached from the community of believers, forget who I am, and lose my identity as a member of the larger whole. It is so critically important for believers to engage in communion to remember what Christ has done for us. If we don't purposely take into account the sacrifice of Jesus and give thanks through the Lord's Supper, we will become detached, forget, become disinterested, and then turn away. No one ever pursues something that they regard as irrelevant. Hence, in the Old Testament, labeling someone as apostate is like calling someone a bad word. And what does apostate mean? It comes from a Hebrew word that means a backslider, one who lets go, or one who forgets. This is what David meant when he writes in Psalm 103.2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. The original Passover was an event that freed only Israelites from Egyptian bondage only once. This was limited to a specific people in a specific place at a specific time. The sacrificial blood of Jesus on the cross freed everyone from the bondage of sin and death eternally. The sacrifice of Jesus has no limits, and this is why we memorialize it with communion. So what communion means? By participating in communion, you proclaim the death of Jesus on the cross as the final sacrificial atonement that eternally satisfies the debt of sin owed to God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11.26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. By eating the bread and drinking wine, you figuratively internalize the benefits of Christ's sacrifice and therefore are liberated from sin and death. Of course, bread and wine have physical nutritional value, but the substance of communion transcends this physical value. Communion also provides spiritual nourishment that refreshes our intangible spiritual self. This is alluded to when Jesus speaks in John 6, verses 53 to 57. There, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. Of course, if you read this verse literally, you may think that partaking in communion sounds very paganistic with the literal eating of human flesh and the drinking of human blood. As I mentioned in prior lessons, biblical interpretation always lets the whole interpret the part. So when we consider the whole biblical canon, we realize that here, Jesus is speaking symbolically. For instance, Jesus also said that he is a vine, a door, the way, and the light. These are also figurative expressions, which is why we literally cannot toast Jesus in the oven or turn him on to light up a dark room. Even more, in Luke 22.20, Jesus refers to the cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Literally, the cup is not a covenant. Symbolically, the cup represents a covenant. 
in fact, a cataclysmically dangerous idea is to suggest that communion literally represents ingesting Christ's physical body and blood because the implication is that by repeatedly participating in such a ritual, what Jesus therefore did on the cross is inadequate. Logically speaking, we know that Jesus' physical body ascended into heaven and his body literally is in another realm, meaning it cannot literally be omnipresent and here for us to eat and drink. We also know by implication that Levitical law prohibits cannibalism and the drinking of blood, and that Christ came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. So the bread and wine of communion symbolize the respective body and blood of Christ and point to a spiritual presence of Jesus during the sacrament. This presence is confirmed when Jesus says that when two or more are gathered in his name, he will be present, and by his parting words at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Communion also means that other believers who also belong to the body of Christ or the church come together with you as a unified community. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10:17, Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Communion gathers God's people together at his invitation, and this fits the biblical model that when God blesses, he brings together. While communion invites us to look back and remember what Jesus has done for us, it also invites us to look forward and realize that the best is yet to come, for the bread and wine now foreshadows a royal heavenly banquet with Jesus in heaven in the future. As Matthew twenty six twenty nine says, But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In his future kingdom, all of God's elect will dine at the marriage feast of the Lamb in heaven. In the first volume of What Christians Should Know, the sixth lesson was on covenants, or an agreement between God and his people. It's worth revisiting the last part of that lesson to appreciate how communion is a sign of a covenant between God and his people. In Jeremiah 31, 31-34, it says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The mediator of this new covenant is Jesus, and the covenant has certain provisions and conditions. God provides Israel with this covenantal promise on the verge of the people being exiled from the promised land for violating prior covenants. The promise of this new covenant is an unconditional divine pledge of pure grace. Because Israel was continually unfaithful, God makes the decision to forgive her sins and establish a new relationship where the law is no longer external but written on their hearts. God will forgive sins and remember them no more. As a result, the apex of the new promise is that everyone who has faith and obeys will have eternal life and fellowship with God. This promise is possible only through Jesus. 
the internal sign of this new covenant is faith. The external signs are baptism and communion. As I mentioned before, baptism represents the start of this covenant and communion represents the continuance of the covenant. And thus, Jesus formalizes communion as a sign of the new covenant when he says in Matthew 26, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Essentially, since the beginning in Genesis, humans were unable to obtain the blessings offered in all of the prior covenants because they were incapable of meeting the Lord's conditions. So it became necessary for God to graciously give more in order to save his creation. As is always the case, humans can't do so God does and provides. So in the new covenant, Christ now becomes a mediator for us between humanity and the Father because in the past a covenant directly between God and humans failed. Just as in every other covenant, in order to participate in this one, one has to have faith and believe in Christ as the one who redeems humanity. Also, in prior covenants, the people involved were incapable of obedience because they lacked the redemption and atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who now frees us from the bondage of sin, which prevents us from obeying God. With the new covenant, represented by communion, faith produces obedience, and thus we become participants in the promise. And this covenantal promise is everlasting with everyone who believes, so that God will be your God, you shall be his. The Holy Spirit works in us to bring about new covenant power, and God is subsequently revealed to us all in full. The new covenant is the replacement of the old Mosaic covenant and is the fulfillment of every other Old Testament covenant. And again, we participate in communion to memorialize and remember the power, sufficiency, and timelessness of what Jesus did for us. So the who, when, and how of communion. There is no explicit biblical prescription of who can partake in communion. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the text describes Jesus initiating the Lord's Supper with his disciples who knew Jesus and had an understanding of what he was doing. Having a basic comprehension of who Jesus is and what communion is should be a prerequisite for participation. If that isn't the case, then the sacrament becomes devoid of meaning. If someone doesn't have a basic understanding of who Jesus is and what communion is, then participating in the sacrament would be analogous to saying an unknown prayer to an unknown God in an unknown language. The very easy solution to this dilemma is for the church leader who executes the sacrament to give a brief synopsis of who Jesus is and why the church body is participating in communion before everyone eats the bread and drinks the wine or grape juice. In fact, biblically speaking, there is only one explicit requirement to participate in communion, and that's self-scrutiny. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 29-30, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, 
and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. It is important to know that this prescription by Paul was given in the context of a letter to a church that was acting very badly and had a multitude of problems. In reference to communion, the people at the church at Corinth regularly got drunk and some gorged on food while others went hungry. The church also mixed idolatrous practices with the Lord's Supper. What Paul was trying to tell them, and a message that still rings true for us today, is that it's not the physical communion itself that matters most. It's the proper understanding of the significance and symbolism that stands above the act. Ultimately, what matters more than the person is the person in the context of one body who, as a unified community, partake of one bread. The head of that body is Jesus. In some circles, people say that you have to be baptized prior to receiving communion. Such an understanding goes way, way back to the second century when a very old pastoral handbook, the Didache, makes the explicit prohibition that those who have not been baptized in the Lord's name cannot participate in the Eucharist. The author makes a notable yet divisive reference to give not that which is holy to the dogs. In the New Testament, and in contrast to the Didache, there is no specific mention of baptism prior to engagement in communion. In communion-type scenes in Mark 6, 41, 8, 6, and Luke 9, 16, and 24, 30, for example, Christ blesses, breaks bread, and then distributes food to whomever there was without a requirement for baptism. It's also very interesting that both in Matthew and Mark's gospel, it is established that Judas is the one that will betray Jesus before the Lord's Supper, yet Judas still participates in the covenantal meal regardless. Also note that none of the original participants, the disciples, in the Lord's Supper were baptized. Of course, it goes without saying that if you seek to become baptized before you begin participating in communion, this is never, in fact, a bad idea. In 1 Corinthians 10, 1-4, Paul draws a connection between the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper to the nourishing matter and water that fed Israel in the wilderness. In chapter 10, verses 14 to 22, Paul uses the Greek word koinonia, meaning participation, fellowship, partnership, or sharing, to refer both to the participation in the blood of Christ and in the body of Christ. In essence, Paul affirms that those who partake in the Eucharist are woven together with one another. This echoes Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 32, where he condemns the Corinthians for using the Eucharist as a means for class segregation and insensitivity to those without a means to exclude them from the table. Paul emphasizes concern for every other member of the community. My last point on the who of communion is that although it is meant to draw people closer to God through their remembrance, denigration of communion can have catastrophic consequences. 
If there ever was a reason to what the reformers called the fencing of the table, it is to protect people and to prevent them from bringing harm unto themselves. As R.C. Sproul writes, When a person participates in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, instead of drinking a cup of blessing, they are drinking a cup of cursing. They are eating and drinking unto damnation, and God will not be mocked. If people celebrate this most sacred of activities in the church, and they do it in an inappropriate way, they expose themselves to the judgment of God. Oscar Coleman, the Swiss theologian, said the most neglected verse in the whole New Testament is 1 Corinthians 11.30. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Some scholars believe that the meaning of 1 John 5.16-17 is that God will not send a Christian to hell who misused and abused the Lord's Supper, but he might take their lives. In the end, no one will ever be perfect or sinless when they participate in communion, and one person will not be more deserving than the other. What we should all do is ensure we approach communion with an attitude of repentance, remembrance, and responsibility. There is no explicit biblical prescription on who can perform the sacrament of communion. Communion is one of the sacraments executed by the church. Common sense would compel us to conclude that someone who has a comprehensive understanding of communion would be the one performing it and can thus explain its significance to those who are present. This person could also guard against abuse of the sacrament. Besides that, there is no clear biblical prescription on what a person's qualification should be or even if they should hold a more senior position in the church. There is no explicit biblical prescription of how often to perform communion. The closest reference to the frequency of communion can be found in 1 Corinthians 11.26, where it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup. Our church, for example, Deeper Life Christian Fellowship, performs communion on the first Sunday of every month. Other churches do it weekly, while others do it a few times a year. In Acts 27, there is a description of someone in the early church whom had communion weekly. Acts 2.46 even speaks of people breaking bread in their homes and not a formal church. Yet it must be noted that in the first century church, people's homes were then where people customarily came together. There is no right answer to how often as long as it is being done and being done correctly. What this all means is that whenever or wherever you participate in communion, you have to have a keen understanding of what it is that you're doing. It's not a time to zone out with the wafer and a small cup of grape juice in your hand, nor is it a time to get a small snack just to hold you over until lunch. Rather, it is an earnest time to reflect on the self and upon what Jesus has done for all of us. It is a sacrament performed in the context of a community, the body of Christ, who fellowship with one another through Christ. It's a time to contemplate how the eternal fulfillment of his work is something bigger and better than anyone can imagine, and the mini-feast today will pale in comparison to the heavenly banquet in the future. Had it not been for the blood sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, where his body was broken and his blood was shed, there would be no hope for anyone. Yet because of him, we continually remember and memorialize 
that our salvation is due to the Messiah, who set us free from bondage, reconciled us back to God, so that one day we can live eternally with him. That concludes this podcast. If anyone has any questions, don't hesitate to email us at info at wcsk.org. That's info at wcsk.org. Be sure to put WCSK in the subject line. God bless and see you next time. Thank you for listening to What Christians Should Know. For more valuable content, please visit us at chesadoffel.com. For general inquiries, email us at info at wcsk.org.